Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 3, Chapter 6 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 3, read by Baird Brucher. Chapter 6. Unmoored. We did find a proper relic for my two companions, a finger bone that could have been from St. Clement. I still had not found Lapis. Darek had acquired a notebook in which he spent time drawing pictures of the monuments and carvings of the city. He was very talented, and Einhard, Karl's dwarf secretary, assigned him to continue these drawings for Karl himself. The work seemed to absorb him, which was a relief to me, but I didn't know what he would do when it would be time to return without the object of our quest. As Carl started to make plans to leave Rome and return to Aix, Isaac joined me in a bath. There were not many functioning baths in the city, but I had found one that was less crumbling than the others. The water was not particularly hot, but it was better than nothing. I leaned back and stared up at the mosaics of Cupids and Venus. I have a surprise for you, Isaac said. I don't think I can take another surprise. Isaac waved his hand. Carl Rex is sending me on a mission to Arabia to tell their King Harun about his elevation to Emperor. I closed my eyes. Will you write to me afterward and tell me what it was like? Water trickled past my ears. He had cupped some water in his hand and poured it over my head. I rubbed my scalp where it tickled and turned to him. In the gloom, his smile beamed. Why don't you and the old man come with me? I choked a little. All that way? I don't know if Darek could make it. He is as strong as a leather cord. I thought about it a moment, then laughed. Carl was sending gifts to the great king of Arabia to try to impress him. There were boats of fine wool, some silver things, wine, and a brace of hunting dogs. I was to watch the dogs, which I enjoyed. We set off in a caravan south to Napoli. Along the way, Darek picked up a small brown bird, which he kept in his sleeve and fed berries to that he gathered. We wound among steep hills that changed often. Some had evergreens, some olive groves. The plains were green, and the air was rather dry compared to home. And the light was strong. Now that we were out of Rome, I liked Italy. We took ship from Napoli, a stone city clinging to cliffs above the sea. I had only been on rather small boats, but this was a proper ship, and its motion through the water was smooth. As we cast off and sailed the sapphire-blue water, I wanted to laugh again as the wind buffeted my face. This was madness. What was I doing? What must they think at Iona that I had still not returned? I tried to send a letter back, entrusting it to Alquin's good friend Bishop Arno, who was returning to Aix with Carl. But I had to go. 
And when I told Derek we were going to Arabia to get the lapis, his eyes lit up with joy, though he only made a small sound like a whispering ghost. We sailed by islands dark with trees, not like the smooth bare islands of home. When we landed at night to take on food and water and walk a bit, the houses and walls on shore were all white, bright as stars. It grew warmer each day. Among the Greek islands, we picked up Christopher, a doctor who was traveling to Baghdad to learn their surgery and medicine. He was a learned man, bald as if tonsured but still young with an eager intellect. He quickly observed how Derek sat muttering prayers to himself with vacant eyes, and I told him of the tragedy. He spoke gently with the old monk, telling him of the islands we passed by and Greek legends. On one shore, where we stopped for provisions, there were mighty bones along a cliff that the Greeks say belonged to the skeleton of Achilles. Christopher examined them. They are not human, but a great reptile from before the flood, he told me. We discussed these ancient beasts, and I told him of Columba's encounter with the ancient sea monster in Loch Ness. But what was even more strange... We climbed the mountain at Delphi to see the ruins, and there stood a statue that our guide told us represented the navel of the world, as the Greeks believed Delphi to be. Isn't Jerusalem the navel of the world, the very centre? It gave me pause. I felt during this part of the journey quite disconnected from my own past and the life before this wandering. I felt almost as if I were becoming like Derek, falling down inside myself, or floating up above the world as we floated on the sea. I was unmoored from land, from all, from myself. On a glorious sunny morning I heard something bump. A piece of wood knocked against our hull. There were more. They were charred. The sea was thick with debris. Then the first body floated toward us. His neck was slashed and his head angled away from his shoulders. He was not very bloated, had not been long in the sea. Other men rolled by in the debris of charred wood, broken pots and vessels, rent sails, loaves of bread and other broken things. Gulls swarmed the carnage like the Morrigan. I felt I must be dreaming. One man lay on a board staring up. Our eyes met and he blinked. His mouth trembled. Here's one alive, I shouted. Some of the crew and the doctor ran to the side. We threw him a line, but he was half dead and couldn't grasp it. I decided quickly and stripped to my linens and dove in. I grabbed the line and swam with it, wrapped it around the man and knotted it. They pulled and I pushed until we hauled him aboard. The man's breath came out like air from a bladder, creaking, crackling. The doctor pushed hard against his stomach and he vomited some water. His wet clothes were pulled off, and the doctor checked his wounds, which were light, now pink and puffy from the seawater. Salve was brought, and linen dressing. We wrapped him in my wool scapula. The crew kept their eyes on the sea for more signs of life, but he was the only survivor. We took turns watching over him as he slipped in and out of awareness, not speaking, 
his breath gasping and laboured. After a day and night, he sat up and took some wine. Reynald came over and showed him his little bird, which still lived in his sleeve. The man's eyes grew misty, and he held the little bird close to his mouth a while before giving it back. Then he told his story in a hoarse, groaning voice. We were a trading vessel, going from Marseille to Alexandria. Devils! Devils! He had to stop and breathe. Pirates from the heathen land, they held our ship with grappling hooks and leaped aboard with swords, long, thin, curved blades, sharp as razors. It was all so fast, so fast, though it seemed like hours and days, too. He had to rest. We prayed together, and he mouthed the words with us. Later, as he slept, I interrupted Isaac at his ledger. He kept busy as if nothing had passed. Is this common? I asked. He shrugged. Not as much as it once was. Carl has made progress combating the pirates. His casual attitude added a sense of disorientation to my growing terror. We are in danger. He pointed at the mast. I fly the banner of their people. We are under Haroon's protection. They don't sound so discriminating as to respect a flag. I can't offer you comfort. It's a dangerous world. I didn't sleep that night. Whenever I dozed off, I saw the bodies again. I strained to listen for unfamiliar sounds. By day, I found myself jumping at the familiar. There was nowhere I could go. I was trapped on the boat. The sun crept across the sky, torturously slow as I waited for landfall. There was something else, too. I felt rage and hatred for these godless heathens. Unable to contain it, I asked Isaac for a weapon that I could kill these devils with if they attacked. Did you feel this way when the raiders from the north attacked Linda's farm monastery? I wasn't there. As a monk, you are forbidden to fight. There must be retribution. There must be blood. Such a feeling can never be quenched, he said. Your religion is supposed to give you the answers you seek. I cannot teach it to you. He fixed his eye on me. You surprise me. I was surprised at myself. I hardly knew myself, and I told him so. You have confessors in your church? The fine one, then. I'm a realistic man, and my trade involves risk. I'm not one who can help you. I paced on the deck. When we had set off, I felt free and unattached on the boat in the sea, so apart from the world. Now it was fearsome to be cut off from the world, naked and vulnerable, on our tiny boat in the great sea. Where were we going? We were sailing into the unknown. It was impossible to know what might happen, and somehow my fearful ignorance of my fate was increased by being isolated on the sea cut off from my brothers and mankind. After pacing about on the deck, I went to Christopher, who was writing a little notebook. He set it down and gave me a tired smile. I told him my violent feelings. 
Death comes to all, he said. It could come in the way you fear at the hands of the heathen, or in a raid from the white men of the north. It could come in illness, or in a sudden bursting of the heart, but it will come. One must have faith and be prepared. By saying these things aloud, I understood my own feelings better. It's not that I'm afraid to die, but to die in surprise, unarmed and vulnerable, in an unjust way. I can accept a just death, but not to be cut down in a senseless act of brutality. God is never unjust, but men are. He thought about this, and rubbed the graying hair of his beard. He looked out at the sea so blue as a sapphire, the sky above a brighter lapis blue, with some great white clouds mighty and majestic. He said, The important thing isn't to avoid one's fate, whatever it is, though in the end one's fate is always death. The important thing is to die knowing you always did your duty to man and God. Then you will die with grace. These were wise words, but they did little to calm my simmering blood. Suddenly he grabbed my arm and squeezed it and pointed out to the sea. The important thing is to know death comes, perhaps on that ocean, and to still see it, to see God's creation, to imagine nothing about what is before you, to look and to not see the possibilities you fear, but to see it as it is now. These blue waves, that blue sky... I stared out at the deep water and felt the fresh sting of the sea on my cheeks. We anchored at Caesarea on the coast of the Arab lands and changed our rags of wool for smooth, light cotton clothing as their people wear. Isaac busied himself arranging for a camel caravan while Christopher, who knew their language, stayed with us to be our guide. I had heard of camels from the Bible. I had no idea they were so ugly and smelled so bad. They were astounding. The night before we were to cross the desert, Derek held my hands and said, I had a vision that I will die in this land, but God will keep his promise to me, and I will keep my promise that we will find the lapis and honor Mary. We will go to the very womb of our religion, and God is pleased. His face was shadowed and creased with pain. His soft, weak voice reminded me of the wind in a seashell. The sky over the desert was the kind of sky that creates prophets. Of course people founded religions here. The blazing stars seemed to roar in the inky blackness, a kind of silent roar, if that makes sense, for the silence swallowed all of us, small figures in the vast rolling landscape. One night, something woke me. I sat up, sensing something was wrong. Somehow I could see a shadow stirring away from the camp. I recognized that shadow. I hurried up to Derek. Where are you going? I put my hand on his shoulder, but he didn't stop. I asked Isaac if we were going to stop in Jerusalem, and he said no. We must go to Jerusalem. 
It will be a blessing. I'm sure we are going to Jerusalem. Come, we must go back. But he wouldn't stop, walking quickly. I had to keep up, but we were getting further from our camp. I was afraid to tackle him and carry him back, if I even could have. Let me lead, I said, thinking I could pretend to take him to Jerusalem and lead him back to camp. But he didn't reply or stop. I was frightened, but helpless. I couldn't leave him to die in the desert. We walked north, guided by the stars, until sunrise flamed the red cliffs. We were in a valley. The place was desolate, and I knew no one would come after us. We had no water. We stopped as the rising sun pressed on us. At last he was tired enough to sleep, and we lay down in the shadow of a cliff. As he slept I tried to think, but my head pounded in the blazing sun. I had driven him on this journey with the promise of Lapis. It was I who had led him, because I wanted to see the wide world. It was a madman's journey, and I didn't know which of us was mad. We rose, and as I stretched and looked up, I saw a shadow heading up the side of the cliff that looked like it could be a track. We followed it until I had to stop and retch. We should wait until night, and it's cool, Derek said. We'll lose the track if we do. We walked on and found some camel faces. But how old were they? They would be preserved forever here. As the sun set, I saw what made my heart leap. A village of mud-brick buildings. I started to run, but Derek couldn't keep up. We hurried together as best we could. An hour passed, then another. The sun set. We'll be there tomorrow, Derek said. We slept by the track, but the next morning the village had disappeared. It was a delusion. My breath rasped in my dry, aching throat. I couldn't speak any more, and didn't want to. I prayed silently. I begged. Let us come to a house. Let us be found. Let Isaac have sent someone after us. Let us find a well, just a well, Lord, just a pool to drink, nothing more. No riches, no powers, no fine meals or fresh clothes, but a pool of water to drink. And enough besides to soak my cracked feet, nothing more. We are like Moses, Derek said with a small smile. I wanted to kill him not only for leading me to my death, but because he was happy and made no apology. But later he started retching too. I held him, and we stood up, leaning against each other. His breath stunk. We both were rank, the smell of life melting into death. I thought, perhaps someone could find us following this smell. When I looked up from his shoulder, my heart stopped. On the horizon, blowing up from the orange sand, was a cloud like a vision of the end of the world. It filled the horizon, a brown and tan, slow-moving creature coming toward us. At first it was eerily silent, like a dream as it rolled over the waves of desert. Then the wind came. 
We heard it before we felt it, like the ocean. Derek turned to look. He took a few steps forward and raised his arms level with his shoulders like a cross in prayer. I let him go, moving back and cowering by a hill. The cloud continued slowly, relentlessly. It only seemed slow. It was actually moving quickly. Circling clouds of grit through the desert into our mouths and eyes. The world shifted all around us. I thought we were dying now, and that this wind would sail us up to heaven if we deserved it. Or that this sandstorm was purgatory, and we would spend lifetimes crouched in the heat, sand sticking to our sweaty faces. When it came, I didn't expect it to blot out the sun, but we were locked in darkness. The air was pitch black and I lost sight of Derek. I didn't call because I didn't want a mouthful of sand. I could only crouch, aching to hold my stiff position. I only knew I was alive because my body hurt. When it subsided, the sun had set. A different darkness, bright with starlight. Derek sat with his legs crossed, still as a stone, his eyes closed. I didn't know if he slept. The moon rose like a great dove, its light spilling like a path over the desert. I wanted to walk up it. I couldn't hide from the moon and stars that knew all. It was my fault, and neither my hatred nor my shame made any difference. I felt ready to die and face God. I recalled Christopher saying, Now and this. The world was mad and beautiful. I was mad and small. Nothing mattered except perhaps I had failed to obtain the lapis, my only mission and excuse for this mad journey. That alone resolved me to live. Not to die yet, or let the old man die. When the sun rose, he opened his eyes. Nodded with a beaming smile, his face sunburned and windburned as mine was. I didn't smile, and I didn't know what to say. The sandstorm had covered the track we were following. We started walking in a direction that was perhaps northeast, the sun pounding on us. Since I am telling you my story, you know I survived. That afternoon, towards sunset... We heard tramping feet and camel hooves. A shadow appeared on the track in the distance, kicking up dust. I couldn't run to it or cry for help. I didn't know if it was another dream. But they came and we met. There were six men with their camels. We didn't have to tell them our desperate state. Saying little, they gave us a skid of water to drink, and without shame I sucked like a baby. They spoke among themselves and one man motioned to us to follow. The rest of the group went on in the direction they were headed, and the one man led us in the direction from where they came. By sunset, we came to a village with a few green trees and wells. At first, as we entered the man's cool dark house and sat on soft cushions and had our feet washed by a sweet girl child, I forgot to thank God. I was still angry with Derek, I wanted him to apologize, to say something. 
he turned to me as our feet washed and took the bird out of his sleeve. The bird lived. And then tears came to me, and I remembered God, and it was I who wanted to apologize to Derek. I wasn't sure for what, for hating him. And I shook and cried. The girl finished washing our feet, ignoring my tears, and she reached to the bird on Derek's finger. It hopped onto hers, and she held it to her cheek with a smile. Her father entered and said something to the child, a rebuke. She cast down her eyes and held the bird out for Derek to take. Derek looked up at the father and gestured with a flourish to the girl, and with both hands placed the bird in her hands, presenting it to her. She looked up at her father with an expression of question and pleading. The father shrugged and smiled, and spoke to Derek with seeming thanks. The girl spoke too, a rush of graceful words to both of them, and she left the room cradling her prize. We ate a meal, joined by a large group of men. Heavily veiled women served the platters but didn't eat with us. Derek said to the man, Jerusalem! Can we go to Jerusalem? Emphasizing it in the hopes that the man would know this name. The man held his hands palm downward and lowered them to indicate there was nothing to worry about. We rested, sometimes glimpsing the girl with her bird. Mostly we sat in a courtyard by a decorative pool. I was still shaken, but I gradually composed myself. As I recovered from the horror of our lost days, I became more aware of my surroundings. Now that I had water, the dry sun was pleasing. The house with its thick walls and deep windows was peaceful. What I noticed most were the wonderful smells. The main smell I remembered from long ago was the tang of peat. These were different spice scents that made my mouth water. The warm taste of the food coated brown in these ground seeds inexplicably cooled me. When I was finally past my trauma, I felt I could live there and perhaps not miss the cold rain and insinuating fog of home. The next day we set out though we didn't know where we were being taken. The same man led us in silence. We travelled lightly, with one camel packed with blankets, bread and water. We were marching where religions were born. The burning sun's rays were like a chorus of voices, preaching of a jealous, furious god. Here is where hardened anchorites turned into bone and sinew. What else is there to do here? Our old pagan religions were rich with gods, myriad spirits, stories of selkies and swan maidens, magic wells and green men. But here, this desert only gives us a burning bush to look into, among rocks and dry shrubs, under the single burning fire of the sun. It did seem like this was Darek's land, suiting his obsession. Then suddenly... We crested the hill of Zion, and Jerusalem glowed below us in the twilight, made of golden stone under a purple sky. I caught my breath at the Bible made real. This compact city between two ravines, mighty in history but modest after all. It is a city of staircases, making me think of Jacob's ladder, and the many metaphors of stairs to the stars of heaven. 
As we descended the hill, I heard dogs barking. I was sure they were the dogs Carl had sent Harun. We came to an inn, and there was Isaac, sitting outside with Christopher and our guides, drinking dark brown liquor from tiny cups. He laughed when he saw us. Marvelous! You found us! We didn't know where you had gone, and we had no idea in what direction to look. You told Derek you weren't going to Jerusalem. I wanted to surprise you. I laughed like a madman until I sank to the ground. We toured the holy places over the ensuing days, visiting the Church of the Nativity. There are not many Christians left in Jerusalem, and its adjoining monastery has only fifteen monks. It was felled by an earthquake thirty years ago. But Carl, his reach seemingly endless, had sent funds to rebuild it. Carl's mighty cranes even here. Outside Jerusalem, we stayed in a Nestorian monastery, where the monks had been spending their days in copying ancient manuscripts for Harun's great library in Baghdad. These manuscripts were even older than Augustine or Jerome. They copied the pages not onto vellum, but onto paper made from wood pulp, telling us the Arabs learned about it from the Far East. It is durable and light, a little rough, and it does burn easily, but it can be made in great quantities. They let me have some, and I made some notes about my journey so far. I wished I could write a letter to Kanaktach on it, to share it with him but I didn't think it would get all the way back to Iona. It was time for the last push of our journey. On to Baghdad. To be continued. If you enjoy Continuous Stream, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. For other ways to support the show, please see the show notes or visit www.continuousdream.com. Thanks for listening.